I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to 3, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. It is kind of a, a lull in the calendar for the big three. There is no denying that. Rafael Nadal and the Australian Open title number 21 is now two weeks removed. And uh, we're going to discuss that as well as Juan Martin Del Potro because that's uh, the big headline from this week is the retirement of the great Argentine, the Tower of, of Tandil. And uh, he was one of the main big three foils throughout the 2010s and the late 2000s, of course, when he won his major. So we'll get into Del Potro, a little bit of a Novak update as well. Um, but let's, uh, let's start with Nadal. I mean, how has this aged for you guys? Because we, we recorded, what was it? Uh, an hour and a half after the final ended. Is there any kind of zoomed out revelations uh, now that we're further removed from this, Amy? For me, the big revelation is that it wasn't really as shocking as some of the pundits have made it out to be, because I think it's one of those things that if you're really, really close to tennis and you're tracking it closely, you would have picked Medvedev, who was the odds on favorite to win the tournament. But we do a show about the three and their greatness. So we take more of a, a zoomed out look at it. And for me, and I think for both of you, there was never really any doubt that Nadal could contend for this title. So the shock is not there for me. And I think it's just um, a function of in any world that you're in or any realm that you're in, if you get too close to something, you can start missing the forest for the trees. And um, it just, you know, it, the, the title uh, is one of his greatest for sure. But for me, it was not a shock. Not a shock, but I would say a surprise. I thought particularly when I when Nadal tested positive for COVID and hadn't been able to train as much. And um, this tournament has been a little frustrating for him. I thought he could, cont by contend, be in somewhere in the second week to win it. It's pretty surprising. I mean, I was, it, but again, I remember going through this five years ago when Federer showed up in Australia at the age of 35 after missing most of the the last half of the prior year and uh surprise a surprise um but of course as you said amy the whole time never bet against nadal but i don't know <laughs> what well, that you know i don't love that that adage right because you know nadal has won a miraculous 33 percent of all majors he's competed in which is an wow. insane number but you know that means that's a 33%. That is less than half. And because nobody wins the majority of the, the majors they play. So I just want to throw that out there. 
but but you know, I think you make a good point because, uh, and I go both ways on this. In on one hand, the things Carlos Moya was saying about Nadal's preparation and what the couple months after the foot injury were like. I mean, that was that was serious stuff. He was saying this was a really really difficult training block, and there were many practice sessions where it wasn't getting better and Rafa couldn't move and the training wasn't good. And then you had the COVID and then you had the terrible draw and the draw didn't end up being as bad as it looked. And then you had, it's the Australian open. It was in a tournament that he Nadal had not won in over a decade. With that being said, Amy, he was the third favorite. And I almost feel like we all could agree that he was deservedly the third favorite. And let's face it, the third favorite after Medvedev and Zverev in the odds, the third favorite can always win. Sure, those are really good odds. If there is a surprise in all this, it it's probably the way he won. And it, again, I say this every time, it's like this age thing is like a cloud hanging over the entire sport and it, it creates a bias. But tennis is so much more than just physicality or injuries. It's about experience and it's about tactical knowledge and it's about knowing how to expend and conserve your energy when it's needed. And all those things come with having played many, many matches in pressure situations over time. And I think credit has not been given or was not given to Nadal um, going into this tournament. But you're right. He did have COVID. Then again, he was vaccinated. And we know from science that people who are vaccinated um, are able to handle COVID better. So he did get over it really quickly. And um, Gil, I mean, I don't want to switch directions too fast on you, but I think the fact that he had so much time off um, and had played so little in 2021 going into this Australian Open, it's making me wonder about him playing the hard court, the North American hard court, Indian Wells in Miami, uh, leading into the clay season. I'm, I'm wondering if, if that's something that, that he's reconsidering. Well, we talked about that previously, and I think what he does, I think he's going to play Indian Wells for sure, for several reasons, including his uh, friendship with Larry Ellison and his enjoyment of the tournament and maybe even suit up a little dubs with his buddy, Mark Lopez, or maybe not. And then, and then- His coach, by the way, as well, Joel. <laughs> then take a pragmatic look at Miami. And that's it. I mean, that's what North American Hardcore is, two events. And then he might end up saying about Miami, well, you know, maybe not. And then he can kind of gear up for his, his part of the year. But um, I, I, wanna, I wanna point out something when you talk about the, when you said, Amy, about the, the credit given to Nadal, I give plenty of credit to him. I never counted him out. And I always thought of him, you always think of these people as contenders until proven otherwise. And I think he also um, illuminated some of the uh, educational shortcomings of the other hopefuls of Medvedev. I mean, I th I'm, I'm curious to see how much, now that the emotion of the loss is hopefully peeled away if Medvedev is getting back to work and thinking, hmm, what really happens? You know, in American football, they break down the film, they look at what happened. And he's doing it, he's treating it like business. And that's what Nadal has always done. That's what each of the of the big three have done. It's like they get back to the real work. 
it's just, it's amazing the margins in our sport. And I mean, Joel, you have me thinking of, of Shapovalov, not only Medvedev and the chances that he had in that match. And, you know, I, I thought he played very poorly in that match by his standards, Felix too. Now Felix, I thought played well, but he blew a two sets to love lead against Medvedev. Canadian men's tennis could have changed the course of history uh, with a couple of things going a different way. How do we reconcile that? I mean, it's a part of me wants to ignore it. You know, what happened, happened, who cares? Another part of me wants to kind of think about it and consider it. Well, you're talking about, you want to talk about Felix and his lead and, or, and, and Dennis and his deal and their games, or you want to talk about um, Medvedev, you know, the two set to leave guys, <laughs> two set to love guys who lost their, their matches. I mean, it's, it's well for them, it's for them to think about um, what skills really go on the match and then the skills, and then you build the game. And then that's, that's where these training blocks are about maybe skill building and maybe certain things, for example, Medvedev, maybe Medvedev should play some doubles once in a while, get some volley practice because he needs to learn that part of the court and Nadal to a great degree exposed Medvedev's limits in that part of the court. I just think that the margins in our sport are so thin. The best players in the world win just over 50% of all their points played. And Felix had a match point against Medvedev. I mean, if he converts that match point, then, you know, it's a completely different story. Who knows what happens? Um, and, and I think that that these up and comers or the, not the up and comers, not the next gen guys like Alcaraz, but the guys who are well-established like Shapovalov and, and Felix and, you know, Zverev, they need to work on some of the other skills like um, managing their emotions and learning the, the, the routines that you go through and pressure situations so that if you have match points, uh, you can, you have a better shot at, at converting the match point. And if you lose that match point and you let a conversion go by, how do you deal with that emotionally? Well, I, I agree with that. And I think experience and decision-making and toughness, all of those intangibles were so helpful for, for Nadal all along his run. And even, even in the final against Medvedev, we talked about how, how Rafa is emotionally and mentally better than Medvedev, you know, in a, in a tennis match at this time. It was a, I mean, you've got a guy who's won a, a, a Nobel prize versus a guy who's just, okay, maybe now he's a, uh, an upper division and he's won one slam, but I, I talked about this before you think of each slam as an exponential factor. So one is one and two is four and three is nine. Oh, 20 is 400. I mean, so Nadal yeah. went and, and, and we talked about this prior in the, in the tangible realm. Yeah. Medvedev on sort of the X's and O's seemed to have some advantages with his backhand and his serve and his movement. And, and, and then the intangible, it wasn't necessarily Nadal's advantage as much as the realm of mystery. Where's that really going to go? And, and look, and even then, and even for all of that, for all the genius of Nadal, for all the greatness, he still won at seven, five in the fifth set. So I think if you're Medvedev, you got to come away. Hey, this is, this is pretty good. I'm, I played the Nobel laureate and, and then he's got to think about, okay, now how do I, it's not so much getting over it because you don't think of it that way as much. How do I improve so that when he's serving at two, three, love 40 in the third set, 
I accelerate and I take care of those things. And that's the other thing that I think the the big three have done so well in their wins. They really, they really against other players have done really good at taking advantage of those things and, and marching through to the win quickly. It's interesting how many players who have been asked over the years about what makes the big three different, just say mental. I mean, don't, I feel like most, a lot of players on tour feel like they can hit forehands and backhands with Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. But see, okay, well, I'm going to take issue with that. Now, uh, no, okay. Well, and uh, by the way, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm posing that as a question, Joel. I mean, do you, players have been asked over the years about what separates these guys? What do you think the most common answer is? Well, of course, they're mental. Everything in life is mental. Technique is mental because it starts in your brain. Because the brain, you know, every all all action begins in thought. So I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, hey, guess what, Medvedev? You, you might want to think it's mental. This guy, this guy did some things smart, smarter. You not just with his head, but with his technique. It reminds me of when uh, when Nadal was beating Federer frequently, and someone said, oh yeah, he gets in Federer's head. Well, first he gets in his backhand. So it's it comes down to it's not just it's. I not, agree. Yeah. So, so, okay. So, so you agree that they usually say mental when they're asked this, but you don't, you don't believe them slash you don't really think they're right. I asked a great player once who won Wimbledon a few times. Said, what was the difference you do? Oh, I guess I wanted it more. Is that just words? That's the thing is the problem, the problem. And this is our limitation too. I know this is mine. Words can only carry meaning so far to, to explain something. So they use these words, this language, they're mental. They come up with the big points. Um, I don't know. Let me, I, I, I will come. I don't want to keep going. I want to hear some of Amy's thoughts on this. Well, I was asked on another podcast, just a very simple question. Why did Nadal win? And for me, it comes down to the fact that he's an all court player and Medvedev is not. And that is mental. If you think about it, because Rafa at some point in his development or his personality or whatever, mentally decided that he was going to learn all courts of the game. He was going to learn volleys. He was, well, that's mental. Your brain has accepted learning new knowledge and you your brain has not shut yourself off to certain topics or areas of the sport. So again, I agree with what both of you guys are saying, which every little thing is mental. Um, but but the, the real reason for me that Nadal won the match was the fact that he could handle all areas of the court. Here's something I, I think, I, and I think I've said this before, from talking to great players over 75 years of tennis history, and you find out what makes the, the super geniuses somewhat better. And I think what the game is, a lot of it is matches are played in patterns, right? We see these patterns, these point patterns, cross court drives and body serves and all this stuff. And what the great players do at a certain stages of the match, it could be early, middle, it could be any phase, they do something that busts the pattern. And what that does, that doesn't just win them one point, that wins them 20 points. Because now the underdog has gone from thinking, hey, wait, I thought we were just playing this and it's executional. And the greater player who has the broader line of attack does something kind of like, whoa, and that, rocks the underdog on his heels, not just for the one person. Well, what's he going to do next? And now the whole thing is broken open. And in a one-on-one -on -one sport, that's very powerful. It's not like a team sport where you can bring someone off the bench to then counter that with something else. You've just got to kind of face it. It's like, oh my God, 
He did something I didn't even know about that. And that gets you, I've talked to lower ranked players about that. That gets you out of balance. But then it comes back to way back to the thing you said, Amy, which is great about mental. Rafa knew from a very young age, I mean, these, these better volleys and things, this isn't two years. I mean, how he uses them is a little more recent, but he was a great, he was becoming a great volleyer in 07, 08, when he won Wimbledon the first time in 08, all of that. So great. it's the, it's the mental choice of how you build your skills and what you work on. And so again, to get back to Medvedev, hmm, what do we do with these volleys? How do we work on these volleys? What situations do we practice in our training blocks? Do we play practice sets where we serve and volley? Do whatever, whatever that may be. Not to become Patrick Rafter, but just to broaden the arsenal. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. I mean, it's true because everything you do on the training court and all of your development, yeah, it's it's mental. I think the other element, uh, and I agree that that if you ask me, you know, why did Nadal win the match. I also go to a lot of technical things like Medvedev's ability to finish off of midcourt balls against Nadal's counter punching. Uh, but I also thought Nadal dug a little bit deeper and was willing to suffer a little bit more through some crucial stages, Joel. I think like effort, well, like Joel, I think effort, I think effort is not always a factor in a match, but in this match, I, I did think it was a factor uh, and it's not, it's not as it's not about how badly Medvedev wanted it, right? Because he wanted it just as bad. But how far can you push your body physically? Well, but what do you have to push it with? It's like the Medvedev inability to finish off those things. That- well, I'll answer that. I'll answer that. Medvedev trying to finish points, shorten points in the third and the fourth set, all the backhand drop shots he hit, which Joel, I know you and I agree we were we were like, this is ridiculous. How many backhand drop shots uh, you're hitting? And he wasn't winning any of the points. Um, that is, that is looking for a way out instead of tr- accepting some of that physical pain. Nadal accepts the physical pain, the physical and the emotional, the whole deal. That's yes. right. Yes. Agreed. So, so I just want to add that aspect. Okay. That was great. Great. Uh, great little uh, post two weeks, two weeks, two weeks after the fact. I just uh, like, the, like the, 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 the eternal case for suffering is we like to suffer. It's okay. Yeah. Well, well, we to be continued. All right. Uh, Juan Martin Del Potro. I mean, where, where, where to begin? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I have some, yeah, I mean, he suffered in a way that um, was, you wouldn't wish that on, on anyone because there's nothing worse 
than being injured. We can get into that. I have some, uh, some really important memories in my tennis fandom that are attached to, to Del Potro um, that, that I guess I'll, I'll begin with 2009 U S open final was the first tennis match I ever saw in person and in my life, Hmm. I was in the upper deck. Uh, I didn't know that much about tennis at the time, but I saw, (laughs) I saw Del Potro and that's not, I mean, you know, I love tennis, but I was more of a player. I wasn't as much of a watcher. Uh, I remember Del Potro cried after the third set after he lost. And I just saw how much it meant to him and the emotion. I thought he was broken. He wins the fourth, he wins the fifth. And after the fifth set, he's crying again. Now it's in, <laughs> now it's out of joy. The emotional roller coaster of that match um, was really stuck with me. And that's the kind of one-on-one war that and chess match that tennis can be. I mean, that, that match, I don't think anything will ever beat it for me. So I have Del Potro to thank for introducing me to live tennis in a way that could not have been any more impactful. Um, And that'll stay with me. The first match you ever saw in person was a five set U S open final. Yeah. And if I, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That of of, of seeing Federer's five Pete Federer's quest for a six Pete. Yes. Wow. Wow, that is impressive! Wow, um, I, I was I was at that match working for a tennis channel, and yeah, it was quite. Uh, it, it seemed it seemed early on that it was going to be kind of like a another another W for Roger versus this first time finalist who who was a good player and uh, had beaten Nadal handily in the semis. But you know, this Roger Federer going for a six straight U.S. Open. Federer had already won the the French in Wimbledon that year, beaten Del Potro in the semis of Roland Garros. So. But yeah, he a very impressive player, uh, Del Potro. I mean, that forehand is a what massive, physical, hard shot, big. And as it relates to R three, I think it's interesting that it was he had to beat both Nadal and Federer in that tournament to get his title, and he beat Djokovic in the Olympics on his way to a silver medal. And so he, you know, if you go on YouTube and you look Del Potro versus the big three for a video search, you can find some of the most amazing points. And I encourage anyone to do that. And the, the way that he was, uh, the way that he was injured, um, it, a lot of times it came down to this knee, which he shattered twice going for balls, the kneecap. So it's really unlucky. And if he were still around, you know, he, he could probably contend. And uh, for me, it's just a shame the way that it has ended. And um, I hope that he's able to live without pain. He tells this story of how he's just trying to drive home in Argentina to Tandil. And it's like a three hour drive from where he's living and uh, or five three to five hour drive and he has to stop and stretch his knee periodically and for for him that was kind of the final straw where where he knew it was time that's really said a very um beloved likable the kind of a gentle giant um his tennis though with 
versus our three, he, he had 17 wins against those guys. He beat Federer seven times, Novak four, Rafa six, um, you know, beat Roger in the U.S. Open twice, and uh, uh, Nadal. Uh, also, also, I think I give him, um, anyone who played a match with Del Potro knew they had been in a battle physicality a little different than the Dow with the top spin, but very much that you'd been through it. I think back to the 2013 Wimbledon semi epic loss to Djokovic that I suspect Andy Murray, who played Jokers in the finals. Thank you. Thank you. Anwar. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. Because, because you could see Novak, he took a lot because it, when Del Potro was in form and playing well, it, it wasn't just hit the ball big, but he could play long rallies and depth and uh, a lot of weight, on the ball. So um, really sad because he is definitely, it'll be interesting to see, well, we'll have to sort through this to think, okay, who was after the three and maybe Mario Norinka, who else would have been more in the mix? And he, he was right in there. Yeah. Now one of my favorite stats that, that surfaced about the 2009 final, that was in the middle of a stretch where the big three won 29 out of 30 majors. That wow. was the, meat of the dominance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and del potro was the one in there which was and again he he beat nadal and Federer. it wasn't like there was that one fluky draw and he didn't have to from a win percentage standpoint he was uh in the in the period i think from 2009 to to now he was fifth behind Federer, nadal Djokovic, murray was fourth and then del potro but you have to think with all of the times where he was coming back from injury and not at his best, he would have probably been closer to like where Andy Murray was at. And like, I truly think that he could have had a very, if he were healthy, could have had a very similar career to Andy Murray. And it would have been uh, a similar foil to the big three that, that Andy Murray was. It's a similar foil as far as, uh, level of play and yet a whole yeah. different foil in terms of style of play because again the physicality of del potro and that's a great point about when remember when he's coming back at one point from an injury and he had to hit a, a one-handed slice backhand for a he while got to three in the world that was eye-opening to me he got to three in the world mostly with just a slice and he and- could kind of hit a hit a backhand uh drive but it was flat and didn't really do much it was really just trade the backhand destroy the forehand he made it all the way to the final of the U.S. Open in 2018, where he lost to Djokovic. I mean, it, 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 the guy had talent. The guy had the body to excel in this sport, and he had the heart. Uh, it, it was just really unlucky what happened to him. And that, to me, says that looking at the careers of the big three, not only have they been great and wonderful and had the the spirit and the drive and the game, but they've also had a little bit of luck to be able to stay healthy and, and sustain what they've had. Well, Roger and Novak probably most so. Rafa, Rafa, you know, one of the reasons why he's won, why he's won a higher percentage of slams is he hasn't played as many. You know, he he has yeah. I mean, not not that he's minimized, but he's had you know he's had his share of, of years where he's been able to play a major or he's withdrawn from a major, etc. So it's different. The um, Novak and Roger, I mean, well, and this gets, it's funny. I, I like the thing you said earlier, Amy, about the mental, this gets to the whole deci- decisions made when one's young about training patterns, about stretching, about uh, all these kind of choices that are made. And even then 
you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know yeah. what's going to happen. But but the the role of technique and training and and discipline and and we haven't even addressed. Let's say how these guys deal with their equipment and their rackets and their string tensions and their grips and all the things that contribute to their shoes and that contribute to them staying like the thoroughbreds that they are. Yeah, don't leave out genetics though. Right. No, that's true. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I I, 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 I like to. I like to bring it up because, you know, it's, we got to be in re- reality with the, the effect that that has in terms of wh- what, you know, the cards are dealt from a health perspective, like Del Potro and his wrists. It, it might've been, it was both wrists. It was his left and his right. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. He, had, he had double uh, wrist surgery. Yeah. He amazingly though, he came back from the wrist stuff. It was the knee stuff and, and the, both of them involved, I believe slips. And and the second one was a slip on the grass in the right near the net. I mean, yes, the the knee, the knee things were, were incidents, but the wrists were not. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting too, that he's a taller player with these huge like quads on his, on his legs. And the guys in the sweet spot are tall, but they're not that tall. So our, our big three are all six one. So um, tall people can have, you know, knee problems or, or joint problems or things like that. So that's an interesting and that, you know, I, I know that the sport of men's tennis is, is getting taller. Um, so that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. So what's the 23 knee test for the young tennis player that determines their things? See, see, the way I look at genetics, the nature part of it is we don't know what percentage that is. So we don't know that. Maybe we could, but the other stuff we can just be massively obsessive about, which our yeah. big three have shown us they have, and they have the willingness and the resources, and there's lots more sports science than there was even 20 years ago. But the, uh, the nature part, it would be interesting. What if you were a 12-year-old tennis player and there was some kind of test you could go that could determine your physiological points of vulnerability. This could say, well, you're gonna be this, t- it looks like you might be this tall and let's do the knees. And so maybe the technique and maybe the training, you know, it's like this whole little, uh, you know, mapping, mapping things out of what it's gonna be. So you can know, okay, and you ought to do this. And, 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 and there are certain things, there are definitely things known about how you should train like, uh, some players, you know, like the, the Rafa three hours, the three hour practice session is not the Roger practice session. And that's, that's hard wiring, that's disposition. Like I know that like, uh, just if I may, for example, if I may say, uh, Gil, you and I had a chance to hit recently. We had a wonderful hit. You're gonna be, you, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be happy hitting 50 cross court. You can do that, not me. I'm not good at the 50 cross court. I'm like 10 cross court, you know? And, and, and I'm in my mind, well, I'm not disciplined for that. It's, and that doesn't mean that's not a yes or no. And maybe there's yep. a thing that won't be as pleasing to you. It's so, so how that, that some of that is inexact, but the science of the body stuff, I don't know. We, we should explore that. I just, all I know is I could have trained as hard as, uh, as hard as anyone. I was not going to be, no, I'm joking, but I'm, <laughs> I'm joking, but I'm not right. Because, you know, you see how, how few Diego Schwartzman's there are on tour compared to, uh, six feet and, and above, for example, but also when it comes to like someone as fast and strong as Nadal Djokovic and Federer, or now I think the young guy who stands out is Carlos Alcaraz. 
you know, it's just the speed and power of Carlos Alcaraz. A lot of, a lot of guys just are not going to have that. They weren't born with that. And I know Alcaraz trains very, 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 very hard, but that's genetics. Agreed. But that, but that, but now, now you're talking about success stratagems and, and to, we were talking earlier about, about injuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, not, right, right. I don't want to, I'm not focusing on the, on the thing about no matter how much and your genetics and you can't teach height and all this other stuff. We're, I'm talking about good point. sustainability. That's a different factor. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so we would be more in the, in the area of like Nadal's foot, right? That has a, there's a genetic, uh, deformity right. in his bone in his foot which he has always had so that's an example where sometimes health issues are genetic that's right yeah um okay but i don't we gotta we can't end on that with delpo we can't well let's talk about roger because i got something to say about roger okay <laughs> uh the the thing that i was not a huge fan of and and look again i call them as they see them as i see them and Everyone knows that I am a big fan of Roger Federer. I'm a big fan of all three of them. Um, but I did not like two days after Nadal has his triumph at the Australian Open, Roger goes to his sponsor in Credit Suisse in some sort of a weird teleconference and starts giving all sorts of updates on his comeback. I think it would have been better to let Nadal have his week, his denouement, and and his uh, glory for for a few days before we saw all these massive Federer announcements. A quibble. I gotta say, I didn't even see that. I didn't even see what he said. <laughs> you didn't see the him on the big video screen being interviewed by someone from Credit Suisse. Oh, I saw that. I did see that. But yeah, I saw that. That is kind of interesting, the time. It was, it was that soon after the Aussie. Yeah. You missed that, Gil. You missed I, all I, that? I, yeah, I totally missed that. Yeah. Okay. He gave a lot of, uh, you know, updates he, on how uh, he's doing. Amy, did uh, he did give a nice, a very nice uh, Instagram Yes. Message. Yes, he did. He, he was, you know, appropriately classy. I just... I didn't want to, especially since the injury update was just sort of like, yeah, I'm not quite ready yet. My doctors are holding me back. That was one of the big takeaways. He wants to do more, but his doctors are holding him back. Um, I, since he didn't really say much at all, I thought the whole thing could have waited. And also, if you're going to do an interview like that, an extended interview, look, I'm biased, but do it with a, a neutral media outlet for him to do it with his sponsor and some sort of a weird teleconference. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Well, Just my uh, opinion. This is now, well, this is the world of, uh, of subject driven content. You know, it's like Instagrams and tweets and, uh, you know, what sponsor, sponsor branded content that goes out. I mean, we're kind of, it's a whole wild, wild west of, uh, of media these days of how that works and here we are and then the other thing that came out if you guys saw it is that Federer and Nadal will both be playing Labor Cup in the fall and that they're one, gonna that one uh that one reached me I got <laughs> that one got to me 
it made its way through. <laughs> Did it get to you? Did you, you know, I, I always, I the guess- carrier pigeon informed me <laughs> that labor cup is, will indeed occur and Federer and Nadal will play doubles together. Yeah, I saw that. Right. And there's something about them joining forces. I, I always, I never quite understand why these announcements of these team related tournaments, like six, seven months in advance, where they come out during other times as if the promoters think, well, people into tennis now. So I might as let them know that he's going to be playing this event, I mean, it's not exactly, but. Ticket sales and, and those those Labor Cup tickets are not cheap. So they want to get it out there. Federer and Nadal will be there. So get your tickets. Yeah, a little presumptive, but it worked because I it did get a lot of attention. Let's end on a, a quick update on Djokovic. He's in the entry list for uh, Indian Wells, but uh, we, we all know that really doesn't mean much. And in a mandatory event, like a major or a masters, everyone goes on the entry list unless they say, don't put me on there. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's unclear at this time what Novak status is for, for Indian Wells. But speaking of promotion, they have not listed him prominently. They have not sold the tournament as world number one, um, Novak Djokovic will be here. It's kind of been a sub note, which has been a little bit weird and awkward, sort of a half measure. Right. I mean, I saw a release that talks about Nadal and Nadal coming back to the tournament, hasn't played it since 2019, uh, won it several times. So it's a little more focused that way, kind of working on the, on the contingency, the notion that mm, maybe Novak won't show up. But yeah, we're going to be tracking this Novak thing all year. And it's kind of hard to be too ahead of it or too, too much conjecture, just... Who knows? We're going to have to see all these different protocols, different countries, all this stuff. One yeah. thing that, that we do know is that here in the U.S., uh, COVID is starting to go back down again. So hopefully Novak can start playing again and, um, and the world itself will open up a little more. We hope for that. Um, all right. Well, very, uh, very enjoyable show covered a lot of ground there. And, uh, as we approach India Wells, I'm sure we'll get more into, uh, Nadal's scheduling his decision to, to play. And, uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on Novak and, and what he's doing. Farewell, Juan Martin Del Potro, much love. Thank you for the memories. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember we're available on all podcast platforms, Big help if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We'll see you next time on the next episode of Three.